there, and welcome to the Peace in Their Time podcast. My name is Scott, and I would like to introduce you to my hopefully informative take on a popular yet misunderstood period of time. This will be a history podcast that will be covering the decades of global crisis leading up to the Second World War, with an eye towards explaining why such a conflict came about and how it got to be so out of control in scope. Now, you're probably wondering why anyone in their right mind would spend their time howling into the abyss that is the internet on a topic that has been so thoroughly covered as World War II and the events surrounding it. There isn't really much else to tell, right? The Nazis lost, and an ungodly number of people died. Libraries of books have been released on the subject, and everything around it. People have lost their minds committing the smallest minutiae relating to the conflict to their memories. The History Channel, once upon a time, covered this ground over and over again, until their nickname became the Hitler Channel, at least until it became the Alien Conspiracy Pawn Stars Channel. It was probably the only thing your history class covered in detail and did anything special for, except for maybe the Civil War, and then your experience depended on if your teacher referred to it as the War of Northern Aggression. Hell, you may have studied this period of time in detail voluntarily, like, as a hobby. But I have my reasons to tell this story. Reasons that I'm eager enough to write out a podcast and offer it up and pray it doesn't get demolished within mere hours of uploading it. Assuming, of course, anyone is actually listening to this. My initial desire to do this was kind of a feeling of weird history nerd nostalgia on my part. World War II was the first piece of history I ever studied, and by the time I graduated high school, I was good and done with it. This was the time of World War II oversaturation immediately before and well after Saving Private Ryan fetishized getting blown in half. So, I moved on to other casual historical pursuits like ancient history and the early modern period, settings Spielberg wouldn't follow aside from Amistad and Hook. But a funny thing started happening between then and today. The details of the wartime period were revised. And yes, revised is a low-key term for rewritten. The clichés of the past that had so dominated the narratives, like invincible Krupp steel and Russians building a rampart of their own dead, started to recede. I'll be going into these in more detail, but suffice to say, nowadays there is a much less fantastical view of the war. It's less of a romantic adventure and is now more of a realistic conflict. So, in researching this, everything that was old for me was new again. And I hope many of you will feel the same way. Now, this isn't to say that all of a sudden there are way more shades of gray here. The bad guys are still the bad guys, and the good guys are still the people who aren't fascists. Secondly, I wanted to tell the story of how the utter insanity that was the war came to be. I will be approaching this as a global crisis of mankind, played out over decades. My plan is to have this podcast broken down into three distinct phases. The first being the haphazard and incomplete attempt at forging a lasting peace in the aftermath of the First World War, the disintegration of that world order during the 30s as the world grappled with the aftermath of the Great Depression, and finally, the war itself. Thanks to hindsight, we take it for granted that the Axis powers would provoke the war, and that the initial Western allies, France and the UK, would fail to rise to their challenge. This is a part of history that is usually simplified for the classroom and basic cable, with Hitler's rise to power being the start, followed by rearmament, followed by occupying neighboring countries, culminating, finally, in open war in 1939. 
Japan is a footnote in East Asia up until they start attacking white folks, while Italy is lucky to get mentioned at all. Or maybe they're lucky not to get mentioned given how things turned out. Britain, France, and even the Soviet Union are treated as hostages to circumstance and have to wait until around 1942 until they get to act independently. The U.S. gets a free pass until the you-know-what on that December 7th. Needless to say, that's painfully simplistic, and you probably don't have a good understanding of the war until, until you get a grasp of just how badly humanity failed, and that everything was allowed to escalate as far as it did. At the start of the 30s, France and Britain were still technically juggernauts, and dictators like Hitler and Stalin took special care not to provoke them. France's army was huge and unconstrained by peace treaties, and the UK had an unbeatable navy. Both had overseas empires and easy access to global resources. In a nutshell, both were at least perceived to be formidable guarantors of the peace that had been established so recently in 1919. By the end of the decade, this was reversed and the two dictators were gleefully tearing apart the international order. The unraveling of that liberal order, established by the victors of World War I, is going to be the core content of this podcast, with the failure to consolidate the peace in the 20s leading to its collapse all throughout the 30s. Another box I want to check is the narrative of each of the individual great powers during this time. The grander mythology of the war and the years leading up to it means that a huge amount of the smaller history gets lost. Remember that people lived through this time, day to day, just as we do. They didn't have the benefit of hindsight and lacked our relatively easy access to information, yet still had to make life-or-death choices. The multitude of decisions made by countless obscure figures, not just the outsized personalities of a half a dozen historical giants, were what enabled this whole mess to happen. It wasn't fate that caused peace to break down. It was failure both great and small in each nation. It started domestically, and soon enough went global. After all, it's usually domestic situations that dictate foreign policies and the interactions between nations. Both the aggressive tactics of the Axis powers before the war and the meek response by the Western allies to those tactics were influenced strongly by the domestic politics of each nation. It was in these microcosms, and not the fantasies of half-crazed leaders, that the conditions that allowed the war to happen took shape. That is not to play down the single-minded drive to conflict of the Axis powers, however, just that they too had some constraints to work within, and which shaped the course of the action. And as for the conflict itself, its scope often means entire battles, campaigns, or even theaters go neglected, almost forgotten. Which is kind of horrifying given the very real pain and misery those who participated in them went through. And I hope to shed light on those obscure corners of the historical record. The effort and the struggle that might otherwise be left to only the most dedicated of historians. Ultimately, I want to create a detailed narrative of the great crisis of the modern period. That's also why I'm keeping this to approximately 25 years of historical space. I can easily go back further and talk about the birth of nationalism, or the old power politics of the pre-World War I days being a big factor in World War II, but that's starting to stretch things so far that soon enough you can blame most anything as having contributed to the outbreak of the war. So, I'll stick to the time between wars, plus the conflict itself, of course. We'll traverse internal politics of nations on the verge of breakdowns, increasingly high-stakes foreign policies, and finally, the most expansive conflict on historical record. The story will take us across the northern European plain, the Mediterranean basin, the endless expanse where Europe meets Asia, 
the teeming core of China, the jungles of Southern Asia, and the lonely islands scattered across the Pacific, and more. Historically, wars break out when the existing equilibrium between countries breaks down. This is not a special or original thought, but a useful starting point to consider. When nations had a limited capacity to exert themselves, wars were relatively local affairs. As nations picked up wealth and technological know-how, this capability expanded and wars got bigger and more complex. In Europe, they became regional, and by the time of Napoleon were continental in scope. By the First World War, they could be considered global as advancements allowed nations to reach out to ever more distant corners of the world. The sheer scope of action covered in the period of the story meant that a breakdown in one part of the world could add to tensions elsewhere, creating a feedback loop as the world lurches from one crisis to another. Instability in one part of the world opened the door for other, more distant parties to add to the global discord in their own neck of the woods. The world, then, is not so distant to the one we know now. In the technological sphere, communications had experienced an explosion in advancement, and would only improve with better and more abundant radios and telephones. Automobiles and airplanes are in their relative infancy at our start, but by 1945 will have improved by leaps and bounds. Culturally, the world will experience a revolution, resulting in the stirrings of truly mass consumption. Radio shows in the increasingly sophisticated cinemas will deliver constant media for audiences the world over. Not only will these mediums seek to advertise consumer products, they will also help craft national identities. And economically, nations would bound up like never before in networks of trade and finance, all characteristics we should be familiar with today. That last item I mentioned, trade and finance, will actually prove crucial to the period. The 20s were dominated by understandable turbulence from economies adjusting to the new peacetime conditions after World War I. Unfortunately, a collective and organized approach among nations to rebuild the global economy was quite impossible, or was perceived as impossible, although in practice it was more due to the victorious nations each looking solely after their own immediate interests rather than any collective good. The result of which would be the fragile gains made in the first decade of peace would be wiped out in the Great Depression. Now, I can't promise an exhaustive history of the Depression, though that would be by itself the topic of a very good podcast. I will definitely detail how the economic crash affected the actions of each of the world's major players and the impact it had on their national psyches. The world had actually seen global depressions before, consequence of increased economic integration and complexity among the industrialized world since the 1800s. But this one hit particularly brutally, and at, suffice to say, a bad time. The industrialized world was just a decade removed from World War I, and the recoveries were fragile to say the least. That isn't to say that the economic meltdown affected everyone evenly, though. For example, both the UK and Japan found themselves in the economic doldrums before the crash even got going. But the US and Germany, aka the two biggest economies in the world, they were wrecked by the Depression. And it was these two that the world really hinged on. This was so for America because of its immense industrial base and financial system. For Germany, it was because of its location, economic output, and large population base meant it could dominate the rest of the European continent if there were no proper checks to it. But what was this world that the Great Depression delivered a proverbial asteroid impact to? Well, this being the introduction, let's take a look at the before times. The big setup of what the world was before the Depression really blows open the door and lets the monsters in. That would be the first part of this podcast, the 20s. 
Here, I will also provide introductions of various topics like fascism and communism, as well as the treaties that helped establish the New Order post-World War I. It will also cover the histories of our major nations up to around 1929 and the Depression. So, this is the setup for Part 1, the ostensibly idealistic world that could have continued had things gone just a little differently. Although, as we shall see, the mistakes and short-sightedness of this era sowed the seeds of the future crises. The 1920s were a time of both exuberance and uncertainty, when the Western world had been badly shaken by a great war that had drained them of an entire generation of young men and sapped them of their prosperity. The map of the world looked very different from just a generation prior, and if given time to develop, it would have been interesting to see which direction that world would have gone in. And it's worth noting for someone living in the early 1920s, they would really be expecting a different future than what they got. Of course, the disaster of World War I had been horrendous, and it would be just that horror that would prevent it from happening again, right? Another conflict involving the dissolution of empires and the deaths of tens of millions of people and the breakdown of society would be unthinkable to the shell-shocked folks that had just come out of such an event. The fact that it did happen again demands some soul-searching as to what exactly went wrong. By 1919, there were only three truly world powers left, the UK, France, and the US. Others would make their claim to greatness, though for right now, those three are head and shoulders above everyone else. What do they have in common? Well, for one, they are all three liberal democracies, and the new order they had created, however inadvertently, can be described as a liberal order. If you want to draw comparisons between that idea and the neoliberalism that came to dominance over the world in the post-Cold War era, you can, although I would caution you to treat this order as much less thought out and much more experimental. The liberalism of the day was certainly seen initially as the way of the future, what with the complete failure of the old monarchies to prevail or even survive the aftermath of defeat. So, post-World War I nations at least paid increased lip service to enhancing democratic rights and shifting towards more parliamentary forms of government. Though keep in mind that the imperial regimes of Central and Eastern Europe might seem quaint now, but we have a century of removal from them. Up until they went away, there really wasn't a clear idea of what the world would look like in their absence. This was brave new ground that the other powers had not reckoned with in their squabbling over their war aims. A great vacuum had opened up all across the world, and the victors would be tasked with figuring out a way to fill it. Given their exhaustion from war, the UK and France would be at a disadvantage at providing structure to an unsettled world. The US, for its part, would find itself at a crossroads between the traditional distance from global affairs and a new course as a world leader. Most Americans at the time were disquieted by the potential responsibility, but most also recognized that the nation was simply too big and had too many interests to stay out of world affairs entirely. So, there are three clearly leading nations, all liberal democracies. I use the word liberal loosely because there are some pretty extreme caveats. Take the example of America during this time period. It was the birthplace of Wilsonism, a set of general principles espousing self-determination and democracy for all peoples, and collective action to ensure peace. As the name suggests, it came from the stated goals of President Woodrow Wilson, whose vision of a united and peaceful world inspired hope in millions across the globe. As an ideal system, it was so brain-dead that it was really easy to pitch, 
Just add one part empowerment of the masses, one part democracy, and voila, peace. And the ideas were vague enough that anybody could agree to it in principle. But it would be foolish to ignore that in America, there was the continuing oppression of every type of minority under the white ruling class. The high-minded ideals of Wilsonism really only applied to acceptable types of people. The most infamous example of this disconnect, which continues to this day, was the plight of African Americans. This was a time of peak Jim Crow and a resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Asian Americans were also held in contempt by the white-dominated society, and where they formed any significant communities, they were also subject to laws persecuting them. And abroad, it was not much better. America maintained a relatively modest network of directly-owned colonies, most notably the Philippines, though the real prize were the vast networks of influence within the nations of Latin America. Business and financial interests meant that there was a kind of shadow colonial empire, which is another thing that we see carry on to present day as well. Whereas Europe was given the self-determination sales pitch, the nations of the Western Hemisphere had to reckon with foreign interference and occasional full-on military intervention. Much of the world may have pined for American leadership in this period, but the reality probably would have been just as disappointing as it is today. Although, then again, it might have, sadly, been an improvement compared to the immediate alternative. I'm talking of the next two world powers, the UK and France. Today, they act primarily as European powers, but back then, they held vast world empires. The problem for them, though, was they were buried in debt, and the weight of empire was starting to catch up with them. Both nations were under intense domestic pressure to step down from war footing and resume life as it had been before World War I or were expected to deliver an even better way of life than before, or else what had all the sacrifice been for? Understandably, both found doing exactly that impossible, and would cast about for the next decade, trying to ensure their respective ideas of a secure future. For France, that would mean securing their fragile advantages over Germany, while tightening its hold on the immense empire in Africa and Asia. For Britain, it meant brokering peace in Europe without overly favoring anyone, and keeping its sprawling overseas holdings from falling prey to separatist movements. Despite being in hindsight so completely bound together, France and the UK would fall partially back into the old pattern of imperial rivalry as well, due in part to them being two of the last major players still active. It would never threaten to progress beyond strained relations, but it did have a chilling effect on the hopes of much of the world. Old-fashioned self-interest creeped back into the policies of each nation, making the spread of liberal democracy haphazard at best, and again, only for certain types of people not already bound to a colonial empire. With liberalism slow to assert itself, the 20s presented a window for more experimental ideologies to come into power. And while the liberal democracies did not have perfectly formed societies, they were just a little too stable for their governments to be subsumed by the tide of extremism that was so characteristic of the period. Now, this newness would eventually spring from two unlikely sources, Soviet Russia and Fascist Italy. The Russian Revolution that set up the first lasting socialist regime was a great shock to the rest of the world. Given that socialism was supposed to follow industrialization, it is ironic that underdeveloped Russia became the landing point of the movement. It became a beacon to the hopeful, or a warning fire for the fearful. Its borders were actually quite stable, right up to World War II, and the revolutions elsewhere it backed pretty much universally faltered, 
But the red star atop the Kremlin remained, and it would be the obsession for many in the liberal world. The British especially were terrified of the new state and its capacity for overturning the capitalist world order that Britain had championed for generations. And the feeling was mutual in Moscow, as the communists wished to do exactly that. Italy was altogether a different story. It was a fractured state, racked by regional divisions. The fact that a brand new ideology based on a centralized, state-dominated kind of authoritarianism sprung from there probably took some political observers by surprise. That it would provide an inspiration to other prospective fascists out in the world, like, oh, let's say Germany, was not expected. Due to a number of poor, preconceived notions about Italy, it was not taken terribly seriously by other major powers. This might have had something to do with their poor performance during the Great War. These preconceived notions reared their heads again after the war, so the part of the Italians in getting this whole avalanche going is glossed over pretty hard. So yeah, the biggest reason why I want to include the history of the 20s is because the time period from 1919 to 1929 represents a tremendous missed opportunity for the world. Most every major power was so traumatized by the experience of World War I and just so desperate to claw back some of that sweet, sweet normalcy that they had lost, that they lost all sight of what should have been their future. It turned out the more they tried to get back, the more was lost to the process. Even the victors faced unstable situations at home, and instead of trying to help each other rebuild the world, they each largely turned away from each other. Sure, there were some attempts at coming together like the League of Nations, or the British and French doing their little frenemy dance. Overall, though, the time period was a failure, not due to outright disaster like the decade to follow it, but rather through a lack of leadership or imagination. A reoccurring theme of the 20s is that it would take quite a bit to break the old habits of the pre-World War I imperial era for most nations. Old habits that wound up dying very hard. I think more than even in the 30s, I'm going to be hard on what would be the Western Allies in this time period, honestly. It was in this decade that the French were at their most vindictive vis-à-vis the Germans, while at the same time only being able to offer half-hearted leadership elsewhere due to the weakness of her, politi- of her politicians. In the UK, their empire almost immediately went into crisis, with independence movements breaking out in India and Ireland. The former was the nerve center of the Asian part of the Anglo-Imperium. The latter, the oldest and nearest holding of theirs, that was also a core part of the home territories. That, coupled with crises elsewhere and the abhorrent specter of communism coming from Russia, meant that the UK found itself constantly lost in its own interests. And finally, the United States does not get off the hook either. My home country found itself the most powerful nation on the planet this time, an economic dynamo already the envy of the world. The U.S. was set to be a superpower before even the ironic economic stimulus of the Second World War. And instead of leadership, we shrunk back from universal principles and world engagement, settling instead to hold each allied nation to their crippling war debts, economic damage and political instability be damned. And then we turned around and lent money out to the Germans, who then turned around and used it to pay off debts of their own. While that helped for a while, it left the Germans not just deep in debt, but dependent on debt to keep their economy going. And while nations like the U.S. today can kind of sort of get away with that, Germany was certainly not there yet in the 20s. So, the U.S. created a scenario where a simultaneously powerful and unstable nation created an economy dependent on foreign borrowing. And when the money faucet turned off overnight towards the end of the decade, well, you know the broad strokes already. 
it's going to be fun filling in the details. Not the normal kind of fun, instead the kind where you're really excited about something, but you know you really shouldn't be. That kind. So yeah, the 20s are where we'll start off. And to begin the podcast, I'll start by introducing the peace after the Great War. The conditions that everybody found themselves in and what ill-regarded treaties were finally hammered out. It was at the peace table the tone of the next two decades was established. And yeah, it leaves a lot to be desired. It was enough to cement grudges, create new ones, and really do a number on old friendships. It left nations isolated and others terribly dissatisfied. So alright, I think I set things up pretty well for now. Let's get going. Join me next week as we delve into the Paris Peace Conference, where many of the grievances and ground rules of our history were established. Thank you very much for listening.